It's Friday, July 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has come closer to a bipartisan win on his $1 trillion infrastructure plan. 17 Republican senators voted with Democrats to advance the bill that focuses on hard infrastructure like roads, bridges, broadband, and public transit. President Biden will still have to manage some Democrats who feel that their priorities have been sacrificed for the sake of bipartisanship. Chris Catalago, White House correspondent at Politico, joins us for more. Next, we are still in the middle of summer, but it might be time to start thinking of the holiday shopping season. When it comes to toys, there will be less choices and higher prices. Ocean freight bottlenecks are delaying shipments from China, and even getting shipping container space is becoming more expensive so the costs get absorbed by retailers and consumers. Omar Abdel-Baki, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why toy prices are going up. Finally, despite rising cases of COVID in the unvaccinated, it can be very tough to persuade the vaccine hesitant. It can be even tougher to talk to friends and family. Experts say the first step is to listen closer. You have to understand their reasons for refusing the shot before trying to convince them. It's also important to focus on your relationship and de-escalate if things get heated. Derek Hawkins, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how to talk to vaccine-hesitant friends and family. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We just left the floor of the United States Senate, where we had a strong and broad bipartisan showing to move forward on this historic legislation, which will be the greatest investment in infrastructure in all of our lifetimes. Joining us now is Chris Catalago, White House correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Of course. Happy to be here. We saw some good movement on the infrastructure bill. I guess they're calling it the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework. There was a vote to advance it so that they can start debating it all. uh, And all 17 Republican senators voted with Democrats to advance this $1 trillion bill. Chris, help us walk through some of this. This is a a really good test of bipartisanship right now and, and a good sign for the Biden administration. Yeah, we go back several months now, even more than that, the last year and the year before. Joe Biden, during the campaign, made bipartisanship, getting Republicans to vote for some of his initiatives. One of the centerpieces of his campaign, a lot of the Democrats he ran against weren't making that much of a deal about that. It was not a huge priority for them. It wasn't something they centered in the campaign. Biden, having spent so many years in the Senate himself before he was vice president to Barack Obama, had said that this is something, you know, a unique skill, basically, that he pitched himself as someone who would get Republicans on board. And so more than this particular policy and the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars included in it is this test for Biden. Would he really be able to get something like this done in such a polarized environment? And so in that sense, it's a really big deal for him. And then, of course, you have the policy itself, which gets to the roads and the bridges and a lot of the infrastructure in the country that's been crumbling. And I think in that sense, it's something that, uh, you know, has pulled really well and something that voters across the country, regardless of which party they're in, have said that they want done. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've seen the dysfunction in Congress and uh, how polarized everybody can be. So to get a, a bipartisan deal, you know, not everybody's going to get what they want, but, but to, to get a deal like that 
passed is going to speak volumes for getting the work done for the American people. Uh, it is still a delicate balance for President Biden and the administration balancing Democrats in his own party and progressives saying that they're not getting a lot of stuff. They're losing a lot of stuff for the sake of bipartisanship. Yeah, I think we're going to hear more and more about that. That's where this second half of this package that the president has proposed is going to be really, really key. They're planning to push that through with just Democratic support, but they need obviously the moderate Democrats in the in the Senate to go along with them. And they've indicated so far that while they'll, you know, allow debate to go on over this really big package right now at 3.5 trillion, that they don't want it to be that big. And so the question, like you said, becomes, well, what aspects of this are you willing to cut? There's a lot in there having to do with fighting climate change. There's a lot in there having to do with expanding the social safety net, particularly in this still being in, in this COVID environment, after school, college tuition. So I think that's going to be the big question. And it's a lot of pressure on Biden. He can only advance what can pass through Congress. I mean, he can't sort of create votes on his own. And so he's got to do a lot of arm twisting. He's got to convince his own party, like you said, in a similar way that he has so far been able to convince, I think it's, like you said, 17 of them voted for this to go forward, but I think probably more likely 10 or maybe a few more will will vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal. So this is what he came in with, pressure on both sides, both the right and the left, and and, um, it's not an easy task. The bill still needs to be finished, written uh, written up, so we'll still wait to see kind of what the final thing will look like. But this $1 trillion deal, the bipartisan deal, is mostly focused, as you mentioned earlier, what they call that the hard infrastructure, so the roads and, the, and, and all that. What are we seeing in the bill? What kind of new spending are we seeing, and how are, are they deciding to pay for it? So they've broken out a lot of the spending so far. There's, they were able to do it, this particular bill, without crossing a couple really big red lines. And I think for Republicans, that included reopening the uh, 2017 tax bill that they passed under President Donald Trump. And so I think that, like you say, these pay-fors are not all worked out yet, but they were able to get this to this point so far without crossing that red line and without probably more importantly on Biden's side of it, not raising taxes on essentially middle-class Americans to pay for that aspect of the plan. And so I, I, you know, there's a bunch of money that goes into transportation related projects on an annual basis that I think um, they can draw from. There's a whole bunch of sort of formulas there and a lot of that they'll, they'll still have to hash out. Chris Catalago, White House correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. I spoke with one toy company owner who said that if his product is not on the water by August 15, he's just going to leave it in China, ship it later in the year, warehouse it, and then sell it for next year's holiday season. Joining us now is Omar Abdel-Baki, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Omar. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about toys ahead of the holiday shopping season. You might not think of it right now because we're in the middle of summer, but companies are already racing to get their toys in stock so that they can have them there. And unfortunately, 
Toy prices are going to be up this holiday season. There's log jams at seaports and, and all that stuff. And all of this kind of gets passed on to the consumer. And just for a timeline of all of this, you know, a lot of toys are coming out of China. They got to be shipped from China in July to reach the U.S. in August so that they can be on shelves in October. So the timeline's always very tight with this stuff. So, Omar, tell us what we're seeing out there. So the toy industry is an industry that thinks far ahead. They agree on prices with retailers six months to a year in advance, and then they have to ship their product from China in July so that it can get to the United States in August so that they can have it on retail shelves by October. So even a week or a month delay can really mean trouble. I spoke with one toy company owner who said that if his product is not on the water by August 15, he's just going to leave it in China ship it later in the year, warehouse it, and then sell it for next year's holiday season. Obviously, quarter four is an essential time for toy companies. It's where they make a majority or at least a substantial portion of their revenue. So they base some of their decisions around around that. I think it's important to note, too, that there's kind of three issues. One is securing a container from China is hard enough. It's difficult. Right. There's, there are bidding wars to obtain one and then if you are able to win one, you are paying exuberant amounts. I mean, sixfold, sevenfold in some cases. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about that very briefly because last July to secure some space on one of these containers, let's say it was about 2,600 bucks. In July of 2019, it was 1,500 bucks. But right now, some of these companies are having to pay five times, as you mentioned, six times that $20,000 more just to secure mm-hmm. some of that space now. That's mostly due to surcharges. Sometimes companies will basically push you up the line if you pay a surcharge. So because of that, the prices are going way, way up. Yesterday, the daily spot rate was $18,300. I spoke with someone who he initially paid 19500 and then was told that he was outbidded and later had to pay over $22,000 for a shipping container that would cost him two to $4,500. Yeah. In regular times. And, and that's a smaller toy company. That's not even the big ones like Hasbro and Mattel, who are also going through these troubles. Yeah, Hasbro and Mattel, they are going through these troubles, but they do have some immunity. They're able to move around easier. They're able to negotiate prices with retailers easier. Hasbro said that they are utilizing different ports, different shipping lines. They're moving manufacturing around too, so that they're not totally relying on, on shipping from China. Mattel has done similar things, not identical. They own a lot of their factories, Mattel. So they don't have that ability where Hasbro outsources a lot. But both of them are are finding ways around these bottlenecks that smaller, mid-sized toy companies, they just can't do. Some smaller toy companies say they're having trouble negotiating prices with retailers, which is making them anxious because they can't absorb all of the costs. So what you mentioned earlier, you know, who's absorbing the cost? All three parties, the retailers are absorbing some of it. The toy companies are absorbing some of it. And ultimately, the consumer will be absorbing some of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time for the toy industry. You know, everybody got affected by the pandemic, but they're saying that it's going to be worse this year for them in a weird twist of fate. It's worse this time around than last time. Last year, they were still able to post 16% sales growth in the toy industry and driven largely by board games and and toys for kids that were staying home because they weren't going to school. So all of this Mm -hmm. is kind of to say, 
you need a plan earlier than ever to start getting your toys and presents and things like that for the holiday season because some of these bottlenecks are going to happen. Things are going to be delayed. And as you mentioned, the prices are going to hit the consumers as well. Omar Abdel-Baki, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Last month, a study showed that over 99% of COVID-19 deaths have been among the unvaccinated. 99%. This is American tragedy. Joining us now is Derek Hawkins, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Derek. Thanks for having me. There's been a lot of talk about vaccines lately, obviously, because of the Delta variant, how it's raging throughout the United States mostly in the unvaccinated population. The the largest numbers of these cases that we're getting right now are in the unvaccinated. And, uh, you know, it's been a tough sell for a lot of people. Uh, People have been very hesitant to get the vaccine. Experts say consult your family, consult your doctors and make that decision. But, you know, if you're somebody who's gotten the vaccine and, and you want to continue to persuade, you know, family members, friends that have not gotten it yet, it's tough. It's tough to talk to them. It's tough to bring the subject up. And uh, really what you need to do is you got to be a really good listener about it, refine that message that you want to get across to them and be very, very patient with them and, and, and what they want to do. So Derek, you wrote an article, you talked to some experts about how to talk to your friends and family about getting the shot. That's right. I, I talked to some, it's something that had been on my mind because I'm in a position just like millions of people around the country where I have relatives who are holding out, you know, don't want to get vaccinated for one reason or another. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of it. The threat from the Delta variant, as you said, is bad or worse than it's ever been. The case rates among the unvaccinated are, if you can believe it, as high as they were during the peak in January. So it really is becoming kind of a pandemic among the unvaccinated, as the Biden administration is calling it. And so I asked some behavioral scientists, some marketers who've studied this stuff, some psychologists, at this point, you know, what the best ways, what the best kind of tools we have for approaching people who are hesitant to get the vaccine. And it was really interesting what they said, you know, for starters, I think it's important to keep in in mind why we're approaching these friends and relatives in the first place. It's because we love them. It's because we want them to be healthy. It's because we don't want them to get the virus. And I think a lot of us, you know, forget to just say that, you know, we're not trying to go in and win a debate. We're not trying to win the argument or to shame them or to berate them. We're there because we love them. We're there because we care about their health and safety. So for starters, you know, anybody entering one of these conversations to just say that I love you. I care about you. This is keeping me up at night. You know, it's okay to show some vulnerability. After that, you know, it's really important to listen, you know, just to be a good listener. If you ask people what their concerns are, their reasons might surprise you. We've heard a lot about ideological identity, sort of political based reasons that people don't want to get vaccinated. And there's plenty of that. But maybe it's something as simple as childcare. Maybe they can't get off work. Maybe they have a fear of needles. A huge portion of the country is afraid of needles. So ask, listen. And once you have an idea, tailor your message. Tell them there's a few different groups of kind of people that, you know, might be holding out against the vaccine. Think about where they're at. You know, if they're apathetic. Consider bartering, offer a trade, offer babies with kids, offer them a case of beer. There's nothing wrong with that. And if they're worried about the safety, consider a logical approach. Consider saying, look, it's going to be the vaccine or an infection. Which do you want to take your chances on? And if they're worried about it for some sort of political reason or something like that, it might help to say, well, this person who belongs to your sort of political group or social group actually says it's a really good thing. So, you know, all those things are important to keep in mind. 
And those two definitely go hand in hand, listening and then tailoring that message. You know, you can't really persuade someone unless you really know what that reason is that they're hesitant to be in the first place. And as you mentioned, speaking to behavioral scientists, they do group them into the unvaccinated set right now into three major groups. You know, the, the apathetic, those that it might just be an inconvenience or unnecessary given their circumstances, the skeptical of the medical science, and then the ones that for political and ideological reasons don't want to get. Those are the hardest to reach as well. You know, you're going to have to try not to get into a debate, as you mentioned earlier. That'll just set you back even more and cause them to dig in more. I've definitely been guilty of that myself, where I find myself kind of pelting somebody with with facts and figures and trying to convince them through evidence. But the reality is they've got evidence, too. I mean, it might not be factual. It might be getting it from some questionable source or something like that. But when you throw a lot of evidence, when you throw a lot of facts at people, they tend to put their guard up. And at this point, we're so far into the pandemic that they probably have a response ready. If you say, well, the CDC says it's safe, you know, it's, well, it's easy to say, well, well, this other doctor that I trust or this other political figure that I trust says it's not safe. And then again, just going back to like thinking about which kind of groups or what you're talking to or what reasons people might have, you know, there's a lot of distrust of the healthcare system and healthcare institutions and pharmaceutical companies among minorities who've been, you know, historically abused, mistreated and failed by some of these institutions. And, you know, I I would never tell a person of color to just trust the government on their face. So again, like it's weedy, but the most important thing, it can't say it enough, is to try to empathize. And that's so important. I mean, you have to start from that place, you know, explain why you're even trying to talk to them about something. And when things get heated, you know, I like the way you put it in the article, de-escalation is key. You don't want to get to the point where you're fighting about this. Now, you're really just trying to help out. And sometimes that message won't be received. But getting into a big heated argument about something is not going to help anybody either. I mean, I empathize with the people who are frustrated, too. If you're having trouble convincing someone, you know, maybe consider talking to, you know, one of your vaccinated friends or something like that to vent your frustration so that you've kind of got that out of your system when you go in and try to persuade the relative or friend who's holding out again, you know. And, you know, like you said, it's really important to sort of avoid debate. If you sense things are getting tense, de-escalate. Don't try to win the argument. And no one to walk away. Sometimes this takes repeated conversations. People are convinced over time with little bits of information. You're not a failure if you don't convince someone on your first try. In right. fact, that's totally normal. And it's totally worth coming back again and again, trying different things. Making it an ongoing conversation is really important, too. We have to accept certain realities here. You know, the, the situation is quite different than it was, say, in like February or March when vaccinations started to open up to larger portions of the population beyond just the extremely vulnerable people, right? They're more widely available than ever. The Delta variant is looming. I mean, cases are are rapidly rising right now. And uh, the information about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines has never been clearer. So, like, the evidence is out there. You know, if people who are holding out against getting vaccinated, they can find the evidence at any major news organization on the CDC website, whatever. People are dug in right now, and it's important to understand that. And, you know, every day that they don't get sick, their personal evidence that they don't need the vaccine is mounting, too. So it's important to keep that in mind. No one to walk away. Know that it might take a few tries. And just, you know, in every conversation, remind the person why you're there. You love them. You care about them. Derek Hawkins, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.